Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 21, verses 7 through 14. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we were greeted, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. This is God's word. Yes, thank you, Susan. Good morning. I didn't introduce myself before, so let me do that now. For those any who may be new, my name is Drew Bennett, one of the pastors here at uh, Redeemer, the city congregation of Redeemer Winter Haven. It's good to see you this morning. We are going to finish our study in the book of Acts uh, today. I know there's a lot more chapters. It really is one long narrative from here to the end, and so we're going to cover some of that stuff topically. But uh, today we're going to finish Acts, and uh, as Advent approaches, we're going to move on to the book of Revelation because nothing says Advent like Revelation, right? I mean, you think of you think of the manger and shepherds watching over their flocks, and and the book of Revelation immediately comes to mind. Um, but it really is it really is an Advent book, and we're going to look forward to explaining that and, and walking through. But what that means is, is when we finish at Christmas with Revelation, if you've not been here, just something to, to keep in mind for your own sake, for your kids' sake, for other people. We, about three, I don't even know, three, four years ago maybe, we started in the book of Genesis, and we have plotted our way through the entire Bible. I don't know if you've been paying attention. If you haven't, that's really discouraging to me. I have to be honest, but if you have, um, we went through the whole Old Testament into the Gospel of Luke, from Luke into Acts, and we're going to finish with Revelation, so we've pretty much covered uh, most of it, and so know that's there as a resource to you, and it's been a fun, fun journey for us, but this morning, just before we leave this, uh, this book, we have, to, we have to deal with a topic that really is throughout the entire book, but we waited, I waited until we came to this scene, because I think it's presented here maybe more poignantly than anywhere else in the, whole, in the whole story of Acts. And it is what you see over and over again from the people who are responsible for this movement. <clears throat> and it's just this, their ability to move, to move into hard things and not melt down, but to, but to be energetic and passionate and full of courage, even as, even as things, you know, the temperature really gets turned up around them. And it's what you see or hear from Paul. And so we've got to talk about it. But we're going to do it kind of this way this morning, the way we've been doing a lot of this is taking this story and using it to kind of jump to the broader context of, of Acts and to the broader context of the Scriptures and talk about uh, this theme. You'll see uh, from the title that I've given you this morning that through many tribulations we enter heaven. Through many tribulations we enter heaven. And so let me ask this question of you this morning as we prepare to come to this text. What's hard right now? 
just in your life for you? What's, what's hard? What are you going through? And it's just wearing you out. Now, if you're a Christian, let me ask this question. Uh, if you're a Christian, does, does your faith, does your faith make any difference? It should. Is it making any difference for you? Because you see, our culture does not prepare us for hard times. It is, it's not always been that way, but it is today. Generations past were much more, you know, much sturdier, much more unafraid than we are in the face of loss, suffering, and even death. <clears throat> and this has happened to us as secularism has taken root in Western culture. And so in the secular view, uh, the material world is all there is. And so the meaning of life is to have the freedom to choose the life that makes you happy. And therefore, hard things can have no meaningful part in life. They're an interruption. They're something to be avoided at all cost. But Christianity disagrees with the secular view. Christianity believes, Christians believe, that, that suffering is actually part of a meaningful life. That the highest purpose of life, according to our faith, is not personal freedom and happiness, but knowing God and enjoying Him and becoming the kind of person uh, that delights in Him and that will live for Him forever. And so for the Christian, the most important thing is not to avoid the hard times in life. The most important thing is to learn how to become the kind of person who can walk through them. And that's the most important thing because we live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world. And so to to try to avoid suffering and pain is a fool's errand. It is out of touch with reality. It's much better, much, much better to concentrate on becoming someone that can handle hard things. And here's the good news. Christianity offers unique resources for this. It uniquely forms people, like we see here, who possess the character that they need to walk through hard things with joy and peace. Not perfectly, but eventually. And that's the person that can't be shaken. Man, it's the kind of person I want to be. And so what's hard right now? And is your faith making any difference? Do you need faith? Can I ask it differently? It's going to get a little tougher now. you ready? What's hard right now, and it's hard because you've chosen it? What's hard, and it's hard because you've chosen it? That sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But I think the lesson of the text is it's what Christians do. In the Gospels, we're told that to believe in Jesus is to take up our cross and follow him. And that's where we see the real power of Christianity, that in a culture like ours that is allergic to suffering and hardship, that we might become people who not only endure it when it comes, but (laughs) like we see from Paul here, not just when it finds us, but we might go looking for it. Isn't Isn't that what we see in Acts 21? Paul's running towards his cross. He's not resigned. He's determined. Look at verse 13, I'm ready not only to be in prison, but to die, he says. And his friends can't persuade him. I mean, it's really remarkable. And I just want to say to you, that's what Christianity can do. It can make you so prepared, so unafraid, so that while the rest of the world moves away from need to comfort, you go in the opposite direction, always from a place of comfort and towards the place of need. Is there anything in your life that's hard because you've chosen it? In a fallen world... Suffering will always find you, but have you gone looking for it? Have you been so changed by God's grace that given the choice between an easy road and a hard road, you choose the hard road because it doesn't scare you, because you believe it is the road that God walks with you on and the communion with him is sweet as you travel? 
And so here's my doctrine. You ready? My doctrine for this sermon this morning is just this. That Christianity is not, it does not offer an escape from a hard life. Rather, Christianity is the occasion for hard life. Good news, right? This is a a feel-good sermon this morning. The doctrine is just this, that Christianity is not an escape from a hard life. It is the occasion for a hard life. Life doesn't go better with Jesus. It gets harder with him. Uh, There is more heartache, more sadness, more struggle, more mess. In in a uniquely Christian approach to life and suffering, uh, that is a means for mission, just like we see here in Acts is what we're talking about. And so... Look here at this text with me this morning. I want you to see, we're going we're gonna to say there, there are three things, really, that are true of every single person that calls himself a Christian uh, that explains this. Or we're going to talk about the, these three points. What I mean by Christianity being an occasion for a hard life, why it works that way, and then how we can become people who can deal with it. And you see it in these three points, that every Christian is really, um, in some fashion, doing these three things. What it means to live by faith, what it means to be a person of faith, is, number one, uh, that you're taking up your cross. Number two... That as you're taking up your cross, you're looking to the cross. And that number three, as you're taking up your cross and looking to the cross, you're actually turning around and you're looking at your whole life from the cross. And let me explain each of those, okay? So first, if you're a Christian, uh, you, you have taken up your cross to follow Jesus into the hard stuff. There's a taking up of the cross. Now, let's come to the text. Paul is headed for Jerusalem, and that is significant because in the Bible, Jerusalem is the place where all the faithful prophets go to die. Paul's not naive about this. He's already said last week, we actually looked at this verse, in Acts 20, 22 and 23, he says this to the Ephesian elders. He says, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit. I love that. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. Now, <laughs> catch that. There's only, he, Paul says, I don't really know what's going to happen. I'm, I'm only sure of one thing. And the one thing that Paul's sure of is that everywhere he goes... There's a cross. And particularly in Jerusalem, he says, I know, I know what's waiting for me there. A cross is waiting for me there, just like it waited for my Lord there. He says, but, but I'm constrained. It's fascinating. I'm constrained, even so. Now, hold on to that. We're going to come back to that in just a minute. But what I want you to see is Paul's made up his mind to go to Jerusalem in the full knowledge of what would happen to him when he got there. There was something driving him. Now, Enter Agabus, the prophet, here in, in, uh, in chapter 21, who takes, <clears throat> he took Paul's belt, he bound his hands and his feet to illustrate God's word, and prophets did this sort of thing often. And so now all of a sudden, it begins to dawn not only on Paul, but on the people that are traveling with him, uh, what's going to happen to him as he's trying to make this decision, and, and the people traveling there with him begin to urge him not to go. They want him to stay and, and not go into that hard thing that awaits him. And Paul knew Again, Paul knew what was there, but, but his friends didn't. And now they begin to know, and as they begin to figure this out, they try to talk him out of going. And this is what is so impressive to me. It's one thing, isn't it, to decide for yourself to do the hard thing? I mean, that takes an incredible amount of discipline and, and, and character. But to be so resolved and so determined uh, that you're able not only to get yourself there, but to push back against the urging of people who love you not to go, that's impressive. How easy, you tell me, how easy is it for you to talk yourself into the easy option? You with me? Well, what about when everyone else around you agrees with you about the easy option you've already talked yourself into? 
And so we learned something. We learned that the chains that would bind him in Jerusalem did not scare Paul because he was already bound. And that's the thing about chapter 20 when he says, I'm constrained. He says, I know what awaits me in Jerusalem, but I'm constrained. The word there, it's fascinating, is the same word as the word that we find here in chapter 21 as Paul's feet and hands begin to be bound. That word constrained there means to be bound. And so to be chained like a prisoner. And so Paul was bound before Agabus bound him and confirmed what he already knew. He wasn't living to please himself. He wasn't living to please the other people, you know, in his life. He was being pulled along toward the thing that awaited him there by his love uh, for Jesus. Uh, You know, he was being dragged, as it were, into this really scary thing, but, but he really felt like he had no choice. There was something, there was some force inside of him that was pulling him there. Now, I wonder, what about you? What constrains you? What are you bound to? Part of the teaching of the text is Paul is like Jesus. Think about it, going to Jerusalem. This is the journey to the cross. Luke 9, which, you know, months and months ago we looked at, says that Jesus, there was a time in Jesus' ministry where he and his men had been hanging out in their, their home, you know, town, basically, up in Galilee in the north, away from a lot of the political unrest and all of the people that had heard about him that were really already plotting to kill him and, and, and so forth. And so these, they kind of went up to the north and where it was safe and predictable and they knew everybody and they, you know, they could kind of manage things, but there was a time in his ministry in Luke 9 where, where we're told that he resolutely set his face to go to, Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem. That he resolutely, joyfully turned his face towards the cross and he left comfort and familiarity, you know, there in Galilee to go into the uncertainty and the hostility of the capital city. You know, and we're, we're, we're to think he did that, of course, because he'd already left heaven to come to earth. He'd already made the big move. Every other move was just a little move after that. And so we see what you see from Paul here is what you see in Jesus. And what's developing for us is, is what I would call a gospel trajectory. There is a gospel trajectory. And the gospel trajectory is always away from comfort towards need, away from safety towards a cross, away from security towards vulnerability from all eternity jesus christ looked at his father and he said i'm ready not only to be imprisoned but to die in jerusalem for your name and paul's words are just the echo of his saviors now what's fascinating and i think you're aware is that christians throughout the centuries have wondered at this and they've wondered and as they've wondered they've taken their cues from it as well so when the plague hit europe in the 14th century and the cities cleared out, families literally left loved ones behind in an attempt to escape, but the Christian community stayed. And they cared for the sick and the dying, and many of them died because of their care for the sick. But they did it because that's what Christians do. Jim Elliott, who was killed by an indigenous people in Ecuador in the 1950s and left his wife Elizabeth to care for their newborn, 10-month-old, all by herself, away from the support systems of parents and friends at home. And not only did she stay after his death instead of choosing to return home in her grief, but as soon, do you know the story? As soon as the opportunity presented itself, she went back to the very people who killed her husband and ministered to them for two years. Why? Who would do that? Risking her own life. Why? Because that's what Christians do. 
we, we run towards hard stuff. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a German pastor and theologian and conspirator against Hitler in pre-World War II Germany, and the Nazis learned of his treachery and tried to kill him, and his friends were able to smuggle him out of Germany. He didn't want to go. There was, uh, there was a meeting, I think, like this meeting here in Acts 21 with Bonhoeffer and his friends, and somehow, I don't have any idea, but somehow they convinced him to leave, and he got on a boat, and he got to America where he had connections, and within 24 hours of landing in New York Harbor, he was convinced that he had made a mistake, and he immediately began to make plans to return, and 21 days later, he got back on a boat, and he went back to his homeland, knowing that it would probably cost him his life, and guess what? It did. To an American friend, he wrote, I am enjoying a few weeks of freedom, but I feel I must get back to the trenches. And one of his friends wrote about his decision saying he abandoned all, in all clarity many great possibilities for his own development and returned to dismal slavery and a dark future. It was Bonhoeffer, of course, who wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. And I, you know, I think that's, I think that's poignant. Now, I thought to share some of the ways, because all of those can feel a little overwhelming, can't they? Some of the ways that this is happening to me uh, in my own life, some of the ways that God's calling me to similar, smaller, much, much smaller things, but in similar ways. But to be honest, they're all too personal for a setting like this. But to be sure, in every single one of our lives, I think, we just leave it here. In big ways and in small ways, this is what Christians do. We leave freedom for the trenches. We move away from comfort and go towards need because it's what our God and Savior has done for us and what he's commanded of us. But here's the thing. Pay attention to this. And kids, pay attention to me for a minute here. I want you to hear this. And here, here's a principle that you, can't, that you can't just walk past in this text right here, and it's this. The people, sometimes, in light of everything I've said, what you have to be aware of is that sometimes the people who love you absolutely the most will often try to keep you from the thing God's calling you to. You see that, you see that here, don't you? It's not just to ha- it doesn't just happen here. Think of the interchange between Peter and Jesus. Do you remember when Jesus has finally kind of made up his mind to go to the cross? He says, you know, to his guys, the Son of Man's going to suffer and die, and, and good old Peter comes alongside. Do you remember what Peter says? He says, no, Lord, that's never going to happen to you. And Jesus just looks at him like, Peter, who do you think you are? You don't have in mind the things of God, but rather the things of men. So Peter, trying to, to keep Jesus from uh, the cross that had been appointed to him. So this isn't just something that happens here. It happens all the time in the text, and it happens all the time in our lives. I have, I have, two, I have two very close sets of friends who in my life have, um, have surrendered to a call to the mission field, and in both cases there was joy and excitement about the decision, except from their families. And that happens all the time. You've got to know that, right? And both of them had to walk through really, really painful times with their, with their parents and their families because, uh, because it's hard. It's hard for families to say goodbye to people they love. I was, I was a youth pastor for many years uh, before I did this. God has merc- mercifully delivered me from that, Brandon. lock-ins. Holy cow. You guys are crazy. Doesn't that sound like fun to you guys? Spending all night with 10 middle school boys all night? We love you guys. (laughs) But when I was a youth pastor, um, I can tell you, um, the greatest hindrance, the greatest hindrance to spiritual vitality in the kids in my youth group was I watched it happen over and over again. God, we begin to get on them and speak into them and ask them to make sacrifices, and they were willing, but their parents said no. And it just destroyed their faith. Don't do that. 
And so if you're the one that's being called, there's a story from um, Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress that I think is very helpful. As Christian, uh, the character is converted. He sets out for the celestial city, which requires that he leave his family and his loved ones behind, of course. And so Bunyan writes, he says, had he had not run far from his own door, when his wife and children perceiving his departure began to cry out to him so that he might not go and might return to them, but the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on crying, life, life, eternal life. And if you're the one being left, if you're one that, the one that's having to send and say goodbye, learn the lesson of the text, your job is to say, verse 14, let the will of the Lord be done. But you see, both the one leaving and the one being left have to take up the cross. And that's what Christians do. So you see here, I mean, it's a, it's a sobering passage for many of us. I mean, we, we, we have to really be careful uh, not to make too little or too much. But let's, let's keep going. Secondly, why then? If, if this is what the passage is calling us to, then why? Why did Paul act this way? Why have Christians always acted this way? And I think you see here, it's because if you're a Christian, you're, you're looking to the cross. You're not only taking up your cross, you're looking to the cross. And so the writer of Hebrews puts it this way. He says that we run the race up before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So the cross is the center of reality for a Christian. All of our life begins to take the shape of the cross. And that's why Paul says, and I, it's, it's amazing to me the way he does this here. He says that he was ready. I mean, did you catch that? Paul's ready. He, this, he's not caught by surprise. And I think that's the biggest part of our problem, that the Christianity that you and I are a part of makes crosses the exception and not the rule. And if you listen, what you'll hear preachers saying is that God's will for you is to be moving towards comfort and away from need and towards security and, and safety and away from vulnerability. And you should measure God's work in your life by that. And I just want you to say, Paul didn't think that way. And the Bible doesn't talk that way. Peter writes to his churches, don't be surprised by fiery trials. Be ready. And so we need to settle this. And once it's settled, I, I actually think there are three reasons to answer uh, for the why. There's a theological reason, there's a practical reason, and there's a motivational reason. And, and again, we're jumping. We're, we're kind of taking the text and, and thinking out the implications here. And together, they teach us, I think, what it means to look to the cross. So I have to be quick here. So let's go through this. First, I mentioned a theological reason. And there's a doctrine, I think, that explains why Paul acted the way we see him act here. And it's the doctrine of our union with Christ. When we believe in Jesus, we become one with Christ the way a husband and a wife become one in marriage. Paul says in Galatians, I no longer live Christ in me, Christ in me. So we are in Christ, and therefore what goes for him goes for us. He died. We died with him. He was raised. Follow me? We're raised with him. He is seated at the right hand of God. Do you know that Ephesians says that you, if you're in him, you are seated in heavenly places right now in him. He was righteous. We are righteous, but only in him. Everything that happened to us is because we're in him. But if, he's in, if we are in him, then that means he is also in us. And that means that he will be constraining us, that he will be pulling us into his life and mission. In fact, this is what we see in all of Acts 20 through 28, Paul's life, the commentators say, 
they pick up on this, that Paul's life here is taking the shape of Jesus' life. He is now on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to stand trial. He's going to suffer physical abuse. He's ultimately going to be put to death. And the, so it's, it's a retelling, basically, in Acts of the story of, of Jesus' life and death in the Gospels. And the commentators agree that, that it's meant to make a point, that Paul's life is taking the shape of Jesus' life. But here's what I want to say to you. This is the very thing that happens to everyone who puts their faith in him. When you become a Christian, the cross becomes how you do life. Because believing the gospel and becoming the gospel go hand in hand. You can't have one without the other because they both are the result of our union with Christ. And so Philippians 1 says that it has been granted to us not only to believe, this is Philippians 1.29, not only to believe but also to suffer for his sake. There's no believing without suffering. You know what I love about that verse? It says both have been granted. Do you know what that word grant is? <laughs> it means they're gifts. Both faith and the suffering are gifts of God. And they both come from the same source, union with Christ. But I said there's a practical reason also. So there's, a, there's the theological reason. Let me talk about the practical reason for, for one minute. And the practical reason is, is something like this, that Christians run towards suffering because there's only one, there's only one way into heaven. And the one way into heaven is the door of suffering. Acts 14.22, which we could have used for this sermon, Paul goes around strengthening the churches, saying that we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. There is no other door. We've already said that our secular culture is not able to attach any meaning to suffering because if the material world is all there is, then the most important thing is to enjoy what you can and avoid pain and sadness at any cost. But that doesn't work, and it doesn't work because the material world isn't all there is. And if it's true, then a strategy of avoidance is a bad idea. And it used to be that we knew better. And we knew that the better way was to become people who could handle hard things and keep going. Character was the goal. Now convenience is. And so, see, you can live one of two ways. You can live as if the problem is out there, and so you're constantly managing your circumstances and trying to avoid hard things. Or you can live as if the problem that you're really trying to overcome is in here, and so you, the work that needs to be done is work. With you, And so the most important thing that you see in your life is for you to get to work on yourself, to become more patient and kind and self-controlled. And so you can live as if the problem is how to subdue your reality, excuse me, yeah, as if the, the problem is how to subdue your reality to the wishes and desires of your heart, or you can live as if the problem is how to subdue your heart to the conditions of reality. Technique or character. You have to choose. But if it's character, well, then there's only one way to character. See? If you know that character is the solution, is the thing that you need, and if you know that you're just lost without it, then, then what comes to you is there's only one way to character. And you know what the way to character is? It's through hard things. The Bible says that Jesus had to learn obedience through suffering. Can I just clue you in on something? If he needed to learn obedience through suffering? What do you think about you and me? I thought you'd get a chuckle out of that. I'm trying to lighten it up a little bit. I know this is hard stuff. If he had to learn obedience through suffering, then we probably do too. Use, use a home renovation project as an analogy if you want. Most of us wouldn't mind if God were to come into our life and begin to fix a few things that are broken, change a few light bulbs, unclog the toilets, maybe fresh paint. 
and carpet, nothing major though. And then what happens is he comes and he begins to rip out drywall and knock down walls and add on whole new wings and it hurts. But the reason is that he alone knows the true depth of our brokenness and he alone has designs on making us someone more expansive and beautiful than we can even imagine ourselves to be. C.S. Lewis said it so beautifully. He said he will, he will, listen to this, gosh, he will make the feeblest and the filthy of us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and life that we cannot now imagine, a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though on a smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. Don't you want that? Because <laughs> this is what we've been made for, but he says the process will be long, and it, in parts it will be very painful, but that is what we are in for and nothing less. B.B. Warfield, the 19th century Princeton theologian, said that the hard things that we choose because of our allegiance to Christ, the sufferings that we endure and love for others, I love this line, he says, they beat and they batter these stubborn hearts of ours into fitness for their heavenly home. There's a practical reason to move away from comfort towards need. And the reason is that you come out always on the other side more ready for heaven, more beautiful because of the scars that you bear. Now I've been too long. So third, there's a motivational reason as well. A theological reason, our union with Christ. A practical reason that it's God's means of making us beautiful. But there's a third, a motivational reason. And the Bible motivates the kind of behavior we see from Paul here in Acts 21 with the promise of glory. Or the other word is of gain. Now let me just read a couple passages to you in the hopes that I can strengthen and encourage you to continue in the faith. Look at Philippians 1. It's there in your worship folder. Uh, Paul's describing a conflict he's experiencing, whether to stay and minister to these people he loves or move on towards the death that he knows he's co- he, it's coming. And it's striking every time you read it there. He says if he stays, then it's for their good. But verse 23 says death is better. And then in verse 21 he says death is gain. Death is gain for Paul, he says. And that amazes me. Romans 8 Also in your worship folder says that the sufferings of the present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is being revealed in us, Romans 8.18. Similar language in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, this light and momentary affliction, Paul writes, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So here's the Bible's teaching, that there is more to be gained by embracing hard things than by trying to avoid them. Listen, Christians take on hard things because they desire the glory on the other side. It is better to lose now and to gain then. It is better to go without lesser joys for a temporary season than to miss out on the greater glory for all eternity. You believe that? That's an amen, by the way. I'm still training you. Let me say it again. Robbie, we need help, man. Okay, thank you. Come on, lead them, Robbie. It is better to go without lesser joys for a temporary season than to miss out on greater glory for all eternity, right? I mean, that is the teaching of the Bible. And it's supposed to motivate us that suffering is redemptive. It is beautifying. So here, let me connect the one before, the glory that Romans 8 promises. If you look there, I just kind of stared at that this week because it amazed me. The glory that Romans 8 promises is the glory, listen to this, it's the glory of you and I becoming what we were meant to be from the beginning. The sufferings that we endure and that we're willing 
to go through are the very thing that will ultimately bring out the glory that has been hidden in us, that is the revealing of the sons of God that the whole creation can barely wait for. The creation can't wait for you to be what God has meant for you to be. Does that light you up? And it's only as you walk through hard things that that begins to happen. So third, then third, I hope I've made an argument that this really is what God intends for us and that we have a lot of work to do. Uh, Those of us in this mostly upper middle class uh, congregation of people, So if we were even to begin to think about moving towards in small ways some of these things, how do we do that? And so let's finish, and as we get ready to come to the Lord's table today, how do you find the strength to find the courage and and decisiveness that Paul shows here? And I've said, you you take up your cross, there's taking up the cross, and following him there's looking to the cross, and those things we just described, but then what the last part is, you have to look, you have to look from the cross, you have to look at all of your life from the vantage point of the cross. John Stott has this little sentence, he says, we have to learn to climb the hill called Calvary and from that vantage ground survey all of life's tragedies. The cross, he says, does not solve the problem of suffering, but it supplies the essential perspective from which to look at it. Here's what he means. He's, he, he, in, in his little, there's a little uh, chapter in his book, The Cross of Christ, about this, and he, he's, you know, he makes the point that the real sting of suffering is not the misfortune itself, it's not even the pain of it or the injustice of it, but the apparent God-forsakenness of it. The real pain uh, in going through something that's hard is the, the, the fear that we have or the, the feeling that we have of the seeming indifference of God. So Barbara Brown Taylor has said that the worst thing that can happen is not to suffer without reason, but to suffer without God. That all pain pales next to the pain of divine abandonment. And what happens when you go through a hard time is it, it brings up that nagging sense of, have I been abandoned by God? And you'll hear people talk all the time about their experience of God in hard times as if he's lounging in a celestial deck chair while millions are starving to death. As if he's an armchair spectator almost gloating over the world's suffering and enjoying his own insulation from it. In one of Job's lower moments, we've been reading Job, he's accusing God. And he, he accuses God of mocking the despair of the innocent, Job 9.23. That God just mocks. He makes fun of people when they're hurting. And this is the sort of perspective that you live with when you start with suffering. And then out of the, the pain of the, the world that we live in, you, you, from that vantage point, you try to make sense of God. That's what the Bible calls unbelief. Viewing God through the lens of your circumstances, good or bad. Now, faith, on the other hand, is climbing the hill called Calvary and from the cross looking down and making sense of your circumstances. God is not lounging in a deck chair. He's hanging on a cross. And what does the cross teach us that can help us? Well, the Olympics this past summer were held in Rio de Janeiro. And I don't know if you watched any of the broadcasts, but over and over again, NBC showed the picture of the the cross of of Corvocado, which which towers over the city. Uh, A Latin American author in the 1970s, I can't remember his name, he wrote a story that imagined a poor man really suffering in one of the slums of Rio, climbing over 2,000 feet up to this statue, this colossal statue, beautiful, lit-up statue, you know, overlooking the city of horrible brokenness and abandonment. And this is what this man who's climbed up says, this, this person from the slums. He says, I've climbed up to you, Christ, from filthy, confined quarters down there to put before you most respectfully these considerations. There are 900,000 people down there in the slums of that splendid city. And you, O oh Christ, do you remain here at Corcovado, surrounded by divine glory? 
go down there. Come with me to the slums and live with us down there. Don't stay away from us, live up, living up here among you know, the clouds. Live among us and share our pain. And John Stott, in that book that I mentioned, he uses this illustration. And he asks, what would Christ say in response? Would he not say, but I have come down. And I live among you still. The heart of the gospel, it's been said, is the pain of God. And behind all of the pain and sadness in our world is not nothing but pitiless indifference, as Richard Dawkins claims. If God were not the God of the cross, we might assume that to be the case. But he is the God of the cross. And that means that faced with the brokenness of the world, he chose not to retreat, but to love. And in choosing to love, he chose to suffer. He took upon himself divine, ultimate suffering. Because on the cross, Jesus himself cried out, you remember, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? And so Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish uh, preacher, described this so well. He says of Jesus, listen to this. He says, he was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before. Now that son became all darkness. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. He was godless, deprived of God. This is the hell that Christ suffered. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. That's the gospel message for you, Christian. Do you know what it means? Do you know what that means? It means whatever hard thing that you're having to endure and go through, you're not alone. And you never have to live with a sense of God forsakenness because Jesus endured that sense of God forsakenness for you. And isn't that the lesson of the book of Job that we've been reading? For so many chapters, God is silent. And just about the time you begin to wonder, where is he? Is he hearing any of this? What, what's going on? Why isn't he on the case? Does he even care? And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, what happens? There he is. Of course, he's been there all, all along, hasn't he? It's just that the pain can sometimes hide his presence. And that's why you can't start with your circumstances and then think about God. You've got to go to the cross and from the cross, you look at your whole life. You look at your whole life from the perspective of what God has done in Jesus Christ for us on the cross. And do you know what? That will make you willing to do what Paul does here in Acts 21. You'll be able to run towards hard things. You'll be able to run towards hard things. Just like all the great Christians of the past. you know why? Here's why. You'll be able to run towards hard things because here's the truth. Here's the absolute truth. Whatever hard thing, whether it be parenting, whether it be marriage, whether it be adopting a place in the city, whether it be moving to Uganda and going and working with Robbie, uh, with, with the poor and the needy there, whether it be, you know, whatever it might be, whatever hard thing that God might call you to, that you put down whatever you're carrying and you run as fast as you can towards whatever hard thing it is that you take up, here is the truth. Whatever hard thing you throw yourself into, you're just falling into the hands of your loving Heavenly Father. That hard thing is only you being nestled in the loving hands of your Heavenly Father. So take up your cross and follow Him. Amen? Let's pray and come to this table this morning. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for this challenging word. Left to ourselves, we would tinker a bit and uh, change light bulbs and unclog the toilet and not get much past that. But um, you mean much more for us. And so we do give you thanks for your kindness to us in that. 
Uh, we give you thanks that you are not content to leave us uh, undone, that you mean for us to be more expansive and beautiful than we can ever imagine ourselves. And so you've come to do just that work. And it's hard. It's through hard times. It's through tough stuff. But uh, it's what you intend. And so we submit to that. Uh, we, do, we do confess to you the ways that we can allow the hard things in our lives to cause us to get sideways with you and start to question you and doubt you. Forgive our unbelief. Thank you for the opportunity to come to this table where our, we can be healed, where our faith can be restored, where we can be healed of our unbelief and we can see yet again and being presented before us in this, this food and this drink that you set before us, the truth of your great love for us. May that love uh, that you have displayed for us on the hill called Calvary so resonate in the deep places of our heart that we would be unshaken and that we would possess the courage and the strength that we need to go into the places of obedience. There are places of obedience that you desire for us that we've not even imagined because uh, we've thought too little of what you might call us to. And so would you open horizons of obedience for us this morning uh, because of the glimpse of your great glory and your love for us that we get, uh, not only from your word, but in this meal as well. And may, uh, may that be, may it resound to your praise and to your glory. May that be to your uh, great good, O oh God. May you be glorified. Uh, we pray because that's what we've been made for and it's what we desire and it's our heart's home uh, where we truly find the life that we're meant to live. And so lead us there, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, we hear uh, Jesus say, take up your cross and follow me. And it just scares us to death. It feels so threatening that he's wanting to take something away from us. Uh, but in truth, I think what that song says and what the scripture says is, no, uh, he has said, I came uh, that you might have life. And so even the call to the things that we've been talking about this morning is the call to life that we might truly live. And so go, knowing that as you go, whatever hard thing that might await you out those doors, you're falling into the hands of your loving Father. That's what this benediction means. So receive uh, the promise of it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face to you. And, ah, I messed that up. Let me do it. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.